with you today comes from a gentleman named David Dykes, uh, Dr. David Dykes, uh, and he confesses that he got a lot of this material from his mentors. So I pass it along to you as an interesting thought today that has kind of challenged my mind. The title of the message today is Chained to the Chariot. Chained to the Chariot. And Father, as we look at your word today, we again are dependent upon the Holy Spirit to bring to life that which is needed for all of our lives. Everyone in this room, God, has different struggles and uh, situations and passions, and I ask that you would take this word today and use it to meet those. Use it to speak to those. Use it to challenge us in some way. And we will give you thanks and praise beforehand because we know that you will in Jesus' name. Everyone said, Amen. Amen. Lord, let it be. Second Corinthians chapter 2. Scott reading in verse 12, and we're going to read 13 and 14, and I'll take most of my text, um, my thoughts today. I don't know what's happening with this microphone. This has never done this before. It's kind of weird. It's welcoming me back is what it is. Technology saying it's good to have you back, Pastor. Verse 12, chapter 2. Now, when I went to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ and found that the Lord had opened a door for me, I still had no peace of mind because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I said goodbye to them and went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumphal procession. In Christ, and through us, spreads everywhere the fragrance of the knowledge of him. Underline this morning in your Bibles, if you wish, the phrase always leads us in triumphal procession. Always leads us in triumphal procession. Those six English words of ours are really reduced into one Greek word. The Greek word is so long. Is it in your notes, um, Ben? Do you have that in the notes that Ken put together for me, the PowerPoint? It begins with a P. It's a great big long Greek word. If you could pull that up, that'd be great. I, I am not even going to try to pronounce it for you. It's so long and it would mean nothing to you anyway. But just if you could see it, you would understand why I'm not going to try and pronounce it. But that one Greek word was a familiar word to the Corinthians uh, and to those that resided somewhere under the umbrella of the Roman Empire because it came from the picture of um, when a general, will, general would go off to war and they would win the war and would come back to the city. First, before they returned, as soon as the war was over, a herald would run from battle. He would run back to, I'm going to get rid of this. Yeah, that's good. Let's do that. He would run back to the community, and he would run through the streets proclaiming that the battle was won. And in that process, people, as soon as they heard the herald heralding the victory, they would immediately go into 
preparation for this word that I'm going to share with you. Oh, we're going to do the whole thing. Hang on just a minute. Take a drink of your water. Squeeze your wife. Do whatever you want to do there. Testing one, two. There we go. How many of you squeezed your wife? How many of you wish you had a wife to squeeze? (laughs) That's really not funny for those of you that don't have one. Testing. 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 Here we go. Hallelujah. Who leads us in triumphal procession. <laughs> so this, this, those six words come from that one Greek word, and, and they understood, the people of the city understood exactly what was going on and what that meant. And so for them, they would begin to prepare for an incredible celebration because soon the, the priest would enter the city He would precede the parade, if you will. And they had incense. And the incense, um, actually, the priest, before the, the, um, the army came back, the priest would, in the temple, begin to... Uh, burn incredible amounts of incense that really wafted throughout the city and people could smell it. And it began to arouse the anticipation of this big parade that was going to happen. And once the army got to the city gates, the priests would meet them there and they would carry the censers through the streets and waving it with this incense filling the streets as well. Right behind the priests were singers who began to celebrate joyful, exuberant kind of songs and and just excited about the victory. And behind them were the soldiers. And last, but certainly not least, was the general who was in a chariot usually drawn by a white horse or several white horses. In some cases, history tells us that they had lions pulling chariots or they would have elephants pulling chariots, but whatever it was, they would come through the gates, and this general would be there, and then behind the general was a long chain that carried anybody who was of, uh, of importance of the country or city that they just conquered. Perhaps another general or a king was chained to the chariot, and they would... Uh, process them through the city, and all those that looked on would humiliate them. In fact, it's, uh, it's said that many um, that had uh, known that they were going to be captured, they would, uh, Cleopatra, for example, it said that she killed herself so that she wouldn't have to be drawn through this procession through the streets and be humiliated because it was an incredibly humiliating process. That herald that would go through the street and proclaim the victory is the same word, by the way, that we use for preachers today. Proclaiming the good news. Proclaiming the victory. When the victorious general came into the city, the people would burst out into song. 
uh, a song that everybody would know, a song of victory. They would throw flowers at the general and the pathway would be strewn with just thousands and thousands of flowers. And this is the word picture that Paul is using here in this 14th verse when he uses that phrase. So I want to look at three important truths from this passage that uh, we can hopefully gain some understanding today. Number one, we're already victorious in Christ. I'm going to say it again because I want it to get into your spirit, but we are already victorious in Christ. I, I, I have a sense that many of us as believers struggle for victory day after day when really we ought to live in victory. Notice the last two words in the phrase, triumphal procession, in Christ. In Christ. See, if we continue with the word picture, it's not us riding in the chariot, as we sometimes Christians think, that we're the ones riding the chariot because we won the victory. But it's Christ that's in the, vic- in the chariot and has won the victory. He's the general. He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. He is the preeminent one. And he's the conquering general. It's not our victory that's being celebrated, but it's his. And the chariot, by the way, is a one-seater. How many times as Christians, we want to get in Jesus' seat. We want to receive the glory. Hey, look what I did. Hey, guess what I did when Jesus is saying, you can do nothing without me. Amen? It is Christ in me, the hope of glory. This verse says that he leads us in triumphal procession. It's Jesus doing the leading. And when we fully understand that we're in Christ and that he is in us, then we can begin to live in victory, not your victory, but his victory. And this, is a, this may sound like a simple truth, but some of you haven't yet got this in your spirit yet. I think as human beings, we all struggle with putting this victory issue in Christ's lap, not in our lap. I don't have to struggle for victory. He's already won the victory. I wonder how many times you and I find ourselves in performance mode where we're trying to fight the battle all by ourselves, And it comes out in ways like this. We think, I can do this. I can overcome this. If I just, if I just pray enough, if I just read the Bible enough, if I just go to church enough, And what we've done is we've put ourselves in a performance mode where God is pushed in a box because if I do X, he will do Y. If I do this, then God will do that. What we're saying is God can't give me victory unless I do my little charade of performance when Jesus is saying, listen, I've already won the battle. I've already won the fight. Stop fighting for it. Live in it. Somebody said it this way. We need to stop fighting for victory and start fighting from victory. Somebody who's a conqueror 
You know, when I ran track and I was always wanting to get to that number one position, there's always a struggle. You always got to work harder. You always got to perform. And boy, you just seem to never get there. There's always someone who's just a little better. And I'm going to tell you, if that's your mode of operation in life, I'm going to tell you that you'll never get to that place of perfection. Because first of all, you're not looking at the author and the finisher of your faith. You're looking at another human being. And you say, well, I'm not as spiritual as that person. I wish I was like that person. I wish I could be that person. And Jesus is saying, no, look at me. Look at me. Because I'm the one that's already accomplished that. See, we've got this thing in our, in our spirit that says, I've got to somehow be good enough so that God can use me to do something. God's want, not wanting us to do so much as he's wanting us to be so much. If we can get that being victors rather than trying to accomplish victory, We'll come under some great, great understanding. I love that song that says, Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. There it is. He has already done it. He's already paid it all. The Bible teaches that Jesus won the victory when he died on the cross. He nailed the penalty of sin to the cross and gave us victory over it. Someone said that we're not fighting for victory, we're fighting from that position of victory. The message translation says, Colossians chapter 2 and verse 13, starting at the end of verse 13 into 15, it says this, think of it, all sins forgiven, the slate wiped clean, that old arrest warrant canceled and nailed to Christ's cross. He stripped all the spiritual tyrants in the universe of their shone authority at the cross and marched them naked through the streets. It's pointing back to exactly what Paul's referring to in our text in Corinthians 2. We see that demonstrated in 1 Samuel as well. You remember the story of David and Goliath. It's one of those stories that many of you learned when you were just little kids. And we've got the picture of David going down to the stream and putting some stones in his little pouch, and they were smooth stones. He picked five of them, and he goes up against Goliath. But prior to them going to the stream, he, he's approaching his brothers, and the brothers are still fighting for victory instead of from victory. And David steps in, and he says, why are you guys so afraid? They're like, dude, haven't you seen the giant? Yeah, but... He's nothing in the sight of God. See, because David was seeing things through God's eyes. He was seeing things through the victory because it was David who on the backside of the mountain out in the pastures when he was tending sheep was able to attack a lion and a bear and able to defeat them with his hands or a slingshot or whatever method it might have been. But he understood that the victory was not in his ability but in God's ability for securing that through him. And so we find David now with all of these mighty men of war. And David looking at this massive giant with absolute disdain for this massive giant who was putting fear into the lives of all the mighty men of Israel. And David eventually, you know the story, 
they tried to put Saul's armor on him, and hey, you can just picture this young teenage guy with the king's armor on him, kind of like the tin man, you know. And they was like, I can't go out and fight looking like this. I can't even swing my slingshot with all this stuff on. So he takes it off, and eventually the brothers are saying, you idiot. And imagine after a while they just said, whatever, go get killed, big mouth, big shot, just go get killed. But David goes down, and the scripture tells us that he didn't kind of timidly walk up to the giant, but the scripture says he ran toward the giant. See, some of you are facing giants in your life right now, and the enemy wants fear to be the lens that you look through. He wants fear to be the lens that you look through. But when David looked at Goliath, he didn't see fear. He saw victory. He saw the power of God. He saw the potential for a miracle. See, some of us are looking at the problem and we see how big the problem is when God's saying, I want you to look at me and see how big I am in comparison to that small problem. The songwriter said, I remember singing it years ago, How big is God? How big and wide his vast domain? To try to tell these lips can only start. He's big enough to rule this mighty universe, yet small enough to live within my heart. How big is God in your eyes? See, if we haven't learned to trust God with the lions and the bears, we'll probably not trust Him when it comes to the Goliaths in our life. Amen? If we can't trust God with the grass and the still water that feeds the sheep, we'll not be able to trust Him for the bear and the lion. If we can't trust God way back in our private time when it's just you and God alone and you don't have to perform, you just have to love. I love you, Lord. I love being with you. It's in that relationship that he brings you to the still waters. It's in that relationship that he brings you to those fields where you can begin to feast on the grass and the things that God would feed your spirit. And it's out of that relationship that he can bring you to the mountains and, and, and be able to sing from there and the, and the valleys that you can sing from the valleys as well. And it's there, out of that, that he brings you to the lions and the bears and from the lions and the bears. To the Goliaths. So there's David. He runs at the giant. One stone, you know the story, hits him in the head, drops him, pulls the sword from the giant, and beheads him. Some of you are looking at that giant with fear, and God says if you'll look at it with faith, see it beheaded, see it destroyed. See it cast down. See it defeated. And see yourself in the mode of victory. There's a truth here that if you allow the Holy Spirit to place it into your spirit, it will change the way you see life. Some people see life as a bunch of problems. And those that have eyes of faith see life as a bunch of potentials. Somebody said it this way, every impossibility is another possibility for God 
to show himself miraculous. I want God to do the miraculous. The second truth is we secure our victory when we surrender. Now, I understand that that statement really goes against everything in our human understanding. That how can I be victorious if I surrender? Picture a wrestler going out onto the mat. All right. And you get ready to wrestle. The whistle blows. You say, all right, I give up. A boxer gets in the ring and he's getting ready. And the, you know, the referee says, come out, touch gloves. You touch, touch gloves and you say, all right, you won. I quit. That's kind of the picture that that statement gives us. But I want you to expand the understanding of that picture. Put it into the context of that triumphal uh, uh, procession that we talked about when we opened today. Who leads us? I want to look at that phrase in the second point. Who leads us? Notice where we are in this word picture of the general coming into the city. Notice who leads us. We are not the ones on the sidelines cheering and throwing flowers as he enters the city. Remember, it was Paul who wrote these words. And Paul was an enemy of God for many, many years. It was Paul who went about fighting the church and killing the saints until God finally arrested him on the road to Damascus. You remember the story, knocked him off his horse and he said, Saul, Saul, his name was Saul at the time before God changed it to Paul. He said, Saul, why are you fighting me? Why are you kicking against the pricks? And Saul's words immediately when he got up was, Lord, see, he understood there was another authority. Another authority. All that he was doing, what he thought was good, really was fighting against the will of God. And the Lord spoke to him, Saul, Saul, why are you fighting me? Saul would go on to say, Lord, what would you have me to do? Because at that point, Saul came face to face with the real general. The one who really was leading the triumphal procession. And Paul would go on to address himself later on as the chiefest of sinners, as a slave, as a prisoner. Read the books of the New Testament that Paul wrote. Often he starts them, I, Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ. I, Paul, a slave. Why would Paul say that if he was a man of victory? Because he understood that in this procession, he wasn't the one on the sideline throwing the flowers and singing the song, but he was the one chained to the back of the chariot because he was defeated by the power of God when God arrested him in his life. Colossians 1.21 would say to us, Once you were alienated from God, And we're enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. And if any of us are going to come to Christ, we must first, hear me, first surrender to him. When soldiers surrender, the picture we all have is this. You you walk out or you're waving a white flag or something, but it's, I surrender. And this picture is, is... I'm raising my hand. I want you to know that there's no weapons here. Palms are facing out. They're open to you. You know I have no weapons. I'm totally surrendering. As opposed to, imagine, okay, I'm surrendering. What am I doing? 
Yeah, you're not getting too close to me because I know you got something tucked in there, right? <laughs> bam, bam. But this says, I surrender. Listen to me this morning. I got this sense in my spirit that a lot of us come to Jesus Christ like this. And we're surrendering, but only until I have my way. You start pushing the envelope and asking too much of me, then I'm going to ask you to back off. Total surrender says, God, I give you everything. I surrender means I surrender. I give up. When soldiers surrender, they come to him like that. There's one verse in the song, Rock of Ages, that says, Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Somehow I think the songwriter had it right when he penned those words. The paradox is that when we surrender to Christ, we win. Our victory is secure when we surrender completely to the rule and the reign of Jesus Christ in our life. 1 John chapter 5, verses 4 and 5. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Some of us like to stop right there. Sounds great. We have faith, we're victorious. But the next verse says, Who is it that overcomes the world? Only he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. In other words, we come to that understanding that he's the general. It's him that's in the chariot. He's driving it. It's not the faith alone that gives the victory, but it's faith in the person of Jesus Christ. How many of you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Raise your right hand. Keep it up. You believe that Jesus is the Son of God. How many of you have surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, your Lord? Raise your left hand. Look where you're at. I surrender. See, if we really, you can put them down, the neighbor's saying, please put it down. I want you to repeat this after me. If you raised both hands. Jesus, I surrender. All I am and all I have is yours. And I hope you believe that. And I hope you live that out. Jesus, I surrender. And all I am and all I have is yours. If I'm going to be a conqueror, then I must first be conquered. Man, that whacks our humanity out, doesn't it? If I'm going to be a conqueror, I must first be conquered. It's one of those paradoxical principles of the word. We have statements like, if you want to save your life, you must first lose it, the scripture tells us. It's one of those kind of things. Give, and it will be given to you. It's one of those paradoxes in Scripture. Wait a minute. If, if I need something, I give something away? That doesn't make sense. Well, no, it doesn't make sense in the natural, but we're not natural people. 
We ought to be people of the Spirit. We ought to be supernatural, above living above the nature of man. We ought to be living in the Spirit, walking in the Spirit. And when we do that, we begin to take on the things of Scripture that make sense to us. That is total opposite of the world. That's why earlier I said, if you're not born again, a lot of these scriptural things, you're not going to understand them. Because your spirit has to be changed. It has to have a total different understanding. You can read scripture and say, man, this is weird. It doesn't even make sense. And you're true. Until you're saved. Then all of a sudden it begins to make a whole lot of sense. Most of us do not like the idea of being chained to the chariot being conquered. The image is not very inviting to any of us. Be a slave. But the truth is, until we're willing to lay down our lives for his cause, hear me, until we're completely willing to lay down our lives for his cause, we truly have not surrendered. I would submit to you that most of us in our walk with the Lord say, okay, God, you can have this area, but don't touch that one. And that's not complete surrender. Too often, we want to be riding in the chariot with Jesus because we think he needs us. And after all, we're real spiritual. And we've done some great things for you, God, so we should be in the chariot at least with you. And let people throw flowers at us because we are so awesome. God, what would you do without me in your kingdom? I am such a spiritual giant. Oh, God, you are so blessed to have me. Where does that come from? We measure our spirituality by our mountaintop experiences when God measures it by the result of our last test. Write that down because that's good. It's a keeper. We like to measure our spirituality by our last mountaintop experience like Elijah. And as soon as Jezebel put the pressure on, what happened? Oh, God, it's so bad. Why does God test us? He tests us to prove us. He wants to know just how much he has done in your life. He wants to know just how much you have surrendered to his purpose and his plan. You think Job was whistling Dixie when he was going through his trial? But whose plan was that? That was God's plan. Wasn't it God's idea when he and Satan were talking? Didn't God say, hey, have you considered my servant Job? Now, if you're Job, you're going, thanks a lot, God. But the book of Job serves as a great reminder of us that God loves to test us so that he can prove his power in us as the conquering general and that we can surrender to that. 
So we measure our spirituality by mountaintop experiences when God measures it by the result of our last test. So we're already victorious in Christ. We secure our victory when we surrender. And lastly, we can experience victory in every situation of life. We can experience victory in every situation of life. Verse 14, that one little word at the beginning. But thanks be to God who always leads us in triumphal procession in Christ and through his us spreads everywhere the fragrance of the knowledge of him. Let's pick out three words in that. I highlighted them for you vocally. Always. That's time. Anytime. All the time. Every time. Who always leads us. And that word everywhere, that's space. Every place, any place, and all places, God leads us in triumphal victory. Let's look at that word but. It's a conjunction that expresses change in thought or direction. The context of the passage is that Paul is dealing with fatigue physically, maybe even spiritually. He's frustrated. He has a sense of failure along with loneliness. He's looking for this guy named Titus, a friend of his. And our passage said that Paul didn't have peace of mind about it. You ever been in one of those times when you haven't had peace of mind? It's where Paul's at. But thanks be to God who always leads us in triumphal procession. What I'm, what I'm getting at here is that the victory we experience is not just in the good times, but it's available at all times, Paul would say to us. Romans 8.37. Some of you can quote that passage. No, in all these things we are... Very good, Cora. Say that again. More than conquerors. By the way, Cora went to camp this last week, and uh, some of you heard her sing here on a Sunday night. She wrote a song for her mom and dad, and uh, she got to sing in front of four or 500 kids. Get up there and sing. They just asked her, and she did it. That's good job. She's a conqueror. No, in all these things, we're more than conquerors. Hyper Nike, through him who loved us. That's a funny word, isn't it? Hyper Nike. But that's that word conquerors. Hyper. My picture's in the dictionary right beside that. The word hyper means extremely agitated or active. I'm more active than agitated, but I'm hyper. And then the word Nike. It's the same word as the sports apparel and shoes and all of that, Nike. It means to be a victor or a conqueror. So hyper-Nike is the Greek word, phrase, extremely active, conquer. Put them together. So we are hyper-Nike in Christ Jesus. Say that because it just feels good saying it. I am hyper-Nike. You sound like a superhero. We're all going to put capes on and fly out of here today. I'm hyper Nike. Going to put an HN on our chest. 
Let me ask a question. How are you doing in the hyper Nike category? Are you more than a conqueror? If we stay chained to Jesus, we just can't lose. He's the general. Our nature is constantly fighting to be independent and in control when Jesus says, you must surrender all to gain everything. In our spiritual pride, we feel we work for Jesus, we're doing him a favor, and therefore God owes us something in return. I want you to catch this. We're working for God, laboring for Him. Therefore, God owes me a favor. The problem with that thinking is, when something goes wrong in our spiritual journey, we become devastated, and we say to God, after all I did for you, And this is what I get in return? I can't tell you how many Christians I've heard say that phrase in one form or another. I've done so much for God. I've sacrificed. I've given. I've poured my life out. And this is what God does for me? What your heart is speaking is, somewhere along the line, I disconnected the chain from the chariot, and I did things as I saw they needed to be done, and I placed myself in the chariot. And I deserved the flowers, and the songs, and the applause. Please, please, Don't disconnect the chain. Remember, we are servants. I understand the scripture says that we're friends and that we're no longer slaves. But he's a good master and he doesn't treat us that way. If we learn to surrender in his will, but he will discipline you. Hear me this morning. He disciplines those who he loved. Why do we get disciplined? Because we're doing the right thing? No, you never get disciplined for doing the right thing in a healthy setting. God disciplines those whom he loves. And we get disciplined because we are somehow trying to disconnect the chain and do things on our own accord. So I choose to remain a slave, as Paul would say. When we have a crisis of faith, we fall away because we based all of our service. We placed all of our faith in what we did rather than placing our faith in the surrendering act that Christ wants us to have. I'm going to invite the worship team back. Wasn't it Jesus who said, without me you can do Come on, without me you can do how much? How much? Jesus said, without me you can do nothing. 
It is Christ in me, the hope of glory. It's Jesus that said, I will build my church. I remember several years ago here, and I was really feeling the weight. In fact, constantly I have to remind myself that this is not my church. I'm just a sheepdog. Barking at all of you, trying to keep you going the same direction and leading you to places where we can all get fed together. I remember specifically several twice very powerful times right here at this altar both of them on a Saturday night in this sanctuary praying for the service on Sunday and God said to me Joe it's not your church I can't tell you weight just lifted off my shoulders I can't build a church I couldn't build a physical structure, and God help us. I tried to build a spiritual one. But it is his church, and he promises that he will build it. And all the gates and powers of hell shall not prevail against it. I don't know where you're at this morning. You still feel like your chain is connected to the chariot. You're still looking at the one in front of you, Jesus, the general. There in the chariot, it's him that won the victory. And we owe it all to him. Maybe you're somewhere in the process of your spiritual life where you say, God, somewhere along the line, I disconnected myself and I I feel like I'm trying to do it all on my own. Would you please forgive me? I want to reconnect the chain this morning. I'm going to invite you to stand with me. Something that was said this morning rings true in any of those areas. I would just invite you to reflect to the Lord and allow him to take all of that back this morning. Let him be the ruler because he so longs to be that.